You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome back to the Agile CTO. My name is Guy Coleman. Once again, I am co-host free today, so it's just me, but uh, I'm very excited about today's episode. We're talking to, I guess, my game dev dad, right? So I've got a few dads in my professional space. Uh, there's like the custom dev dad, which is like Dave Farley and, and uh, Uncle Bob. And more recently, I've been looking for a game dev dad and Rick Davidson, I'm, I'm really happy to say that is you in my game dev journey. So needless to say, we're speaking to Rick Davidson today. He is currently the co-founder of a company called GameDev.TV, and we'll get into that in a minute. But Rick has got a pretty storied history, so I want to just rattle off a few uh, key things that I noticed in your past, Rick, and kind of just fanboy about them a little bit and get you to tell us some stories about maybe your career. But let me begin. So you started your early career as... Uh, research director, uh, software dev manager, and at some point you pivoted into game dev, right? At at which point you started working on some of my most beloved franchises, making adaptations for the Xbox 360, and we'll probably get into a lot of those. Um, but just to name a few, Mortal Kombat, Contra, Paperboy, Track and Field, these are all franchises that I grew up with as a kid, so excuse me if I get a bit giddy during the conversation. But Rick, please take it away. Introduce yourself, tell us a bit about yourself, and then we'll get into it. Thanks, Guy. Lovely to be here, and thanks for making me feel exceptionally old by being your dad. Uh, hopefully, you're the only son that I didn't know about that is out there in the world, um, but uh, welcome to the family, I guess. It's uh, good to have you with us. Um, so, yeah, for me, I, I identify as being a few things, uh, an indie game developer, a career coach, an online educator, a psychologist, uh, and I've been dabbling well, dabbling's the wrong word. I've been massively immersed in the game industry for a good 20 years and working in, in larger studios, doing a whole bunch of boring things and a whole bunch of exciting things. This thing, thing about the, the games industry is that one day you'll be sitting there saying, I've got nothing to do, why am I here? And the next day you'll be running at 1,000 miles an hour saying, I don't know if I can handle the pace of this. And it all balances out to be a pretty good pace, maybe moderately quick. Um, and so you mentioned a few cool IPs that, that we worked on in a very unsexy way. We were porting them from, uh, you know, from one format onto Xbox 360. So I got to be right in, deep in the code of those games, but not actually designing them or creating them. But we got to work on some cool IPs like Marvel IP, Captain America, for example, Mario, worked on a Mario game. Uh, and another story about the game industry. I was going to ask you about that because it... Yep. Because that was the unannounced Nintendo IP, right? Triple oh, IP. did I just accidentally say that's, something I shouldn't have? Like Hopefully background. no one's listening. But Nintendo <laughs> is very particular about these things. So that, that for me was a real fanboy thing. But it's also an indication of the games industry, particularly when you work in larger studios for publishers, is that was a game we worked on for a number of months, but it, it was cancelled and Nintendo changed direction. But, you know, I got to spend time actually making Mario do this and making Mario do that. Let's make him jump higher or run around in circles differently so that, that was super cool even if it didn't see the light of day but that was a fun thing to work on uh, and then I've also uh, created my own indie game studio because I, I was a little bit fatigued with 
working for the man, so to speak. So I wanted to forge my own path. And, you know, the message I have for people out there who are wondering about, can you do it yourself? You absolutely can. You can start your own indie game studio. You can be making games yourself. You can do this as a career. You can be profitable. It's really hard. It's hard as hell. And that's why it's one of those, in a way, I think it can be likened to wanting to be a Hollywood actor. You know, a lot of people like acting. A lot of people perform in their school production. That's fantastic. But not a lot of people make it to be a, you know, an A-list Hollywood star. It's not to say you shouldn't try, but you should have that as a realistic understanding when you get into making games. It is, it's a difficult journey. And so nowadays what I do for the past, I guess, five or six years is working as an educator, helping people to make games. So specifically to learn skills by making games. It's more than just games. It's about how to get better at coding, about art, about your time management, about your own sense of of accomplishment, chasing your dreams and doing something that's important to you. And for a lot of people, that wrapped up in the framework of video games is very inspiring and very interesting. If you say, let's go learn some C++ so that you can, I don't know, make some banking software. That's not really getting people as excited by saying, let's make, let's learn some C++ or C Sharp or some other language by blowing some things up and making some really cool gameplay moments. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of what we do. And our, our team creates courses in, in Unity, in Unreal, in Blender, uh, you know, a whole bunch of game development, game design, um, you know, how to stay on track, how to create a studio, how to get a job in the industry, all that kind of stuff. That's what we do nowadays, gamedev.tv. You know, gamedev.tv has been um, my go-to over the last couple of months. Uh, I would say I've had I've had less time to work on some of the courses than I would have liked over the last probably month or two. But, but before that, I was in the thick of it. I completed your 2D game course. I'm sort of halfway through your 3D game course. And I must say, it's some of the best tutorial content available, if not the best uh, that I've come across at least. And a lot of it stems from you and your style of presenting this content and, and how accessible you make this content. Now, obviously that's by design, but your background as a software developer, uh, generally in the, the enterprise space by the looks of things, uh, prior to getting into the games, um, or at least involved in software development prior to getting involved in games design, um, you must realize that, that the challenges are around actually learning the tools as opposed to, to you know, having the ideas for a game. And that's, that's sort of the angle you present your, your courses in largely. And is that, a, is that, is that assumption or that uh, perception uh, intended? Uh, <clears throat> okay, so there's a few things that you're asking there, I think. Um, in, I have a problem turn... with this, by the way. I sort of rattle <laughs> on and then I form a question right and, at the yeah, end, it's so like, forgive me. Words, 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 <laughs> what do you think? Hang on a minute. Yeah. What's the question? <laughs> so, um, I'm the same. You know, where, where I think you and I are both external thinkers and it drives my wife crazy that I'm an external thinker. Basically, it means that I'm going to say a whole bunch of nonsense for about a minute <laughs> and eventually I'm like, aha, this is what I'm trying to say. And she's like, did I have to listen to that whole yeah. minute of waffle? So anyway, you and I are going to have a good Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think I'm going to put on my LinkedIn profile, external thinker. External with. thinker, yeah. That's I think it's a good way of doing it. Um, and a lot of people are internal thinkers that I work with and oh boy. But anywho, so in terms of, I think to be a, a good educator, you have to be passionate about the result, passionate about the craft, passionate about the topic. So I, I love game development. I love games. I love the idea of bringing joy to people through making games. So I love that aspect of it. But then I'm also, I see myself as when it comes to programming, I see myself as a lot more of a beginner 
than I do when I look at myself, say, as a game developer or as a, or as a business person or as a marketeer or, you know, the, the business side of making games. So for me, it's really easy to stay in that frame of mind of what is a beginner thinking? If someone hasn't touched this, this um, engine before, they're going to look at it and say, wow, there's a lot of buttons. And I think a lot of people, the curse of the expert is you get to the point where you've worked in this software for, I don't know, a year, two years, 10 years, and you don't even realize that someone doesn't know where to push the button to compile the code. And so when you're educating or when you're making a video or when you're, you're training people, you're like, cool, now let's compile. And your viewer is stuck because they're like, I don't know how to compile and I'm feeling really stupid right about now. And the expert didn't, it was like, oh my God, it's been five years since I even thought about how to compile. So I think being a great um, educator, you need to stay right in the mind space of the person you're educating and to be easily able to step into that, but then to be one step ahead in terms of, okay, how do I guide them? How do I give them good structure and good architecture for what they're trying to learn? So uh, I think if you've been through our courses, part part of what you're wondering is, you know, how we get to that space. Is it because uh, I've got a familiarity with software? I would say it's kind of the other way around. Because I'm not a world-class programmer, I think that makes me better at teaching programming in a way. Wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense because it's almost like you're boiling down the experiences um, for, for, for the individual that won't, won't have any experience, right? So yeah. it's, it's almost like assuming, assuming the lowest common baseline of experience and let's build on top of that. Sorry. Go ahead. Lag. Uh, so what I was going to say is um, I think the best way to teach is if you learn it right now and then teach it right now. So if... If you, say, say for example, guy, you get there and say, right, I, I've not played around with Unreal, just for example. Unreal Engine, it's, you know, they're bringing out a, a new version soon. It's going to be all over the news. It's very exciting. Like, cool, I'm going to go learn that. For you to, to get some of the fundamentals happening, you have to really immerse yourself in there. You know, I, I know that you're a C-sharp guy. Maybe you're a C++ guy, maybe not. But you might get there and say, College okay, level. I, I, need, I need to spend... I need to spend hours just understanding this tiny little concept because I'm a bit stuck on that. So you, you go off on all these rabbit holes and you figure things out. Oh, that's exactly why it works and how it works. If you were to go and teach that to someone else right now, you're going to be the most effective um, at doing it. So I think learning then teaching. Yeah. And I think that translates to, to the enterprise software space in that sense. Um, if you, you are... The, the best way to learn something for yourself is to teach it to somebody else because yep. if you are able to articulate concepts and ideas to other people, it solidifies those concepts and ideas for yourself and it forces you to think about them in the simplest possible way to explain it Yes. so that you can convey the core meaning and the core concept of what, what you're trying to get across. Yep. So I see that. And I, uh, again, the, the content that, you, that you've put out there definitely does that. And um, yes, I think you're right. From, a, from an experienced software developer perspective as a C-sharp developer you may look at some of the code that's used to implement some of the aspects of those courses as uh, simplified let's put it that way and uh, some purists might go oh but you could use this approach or this angle or this syntax or this special plugin or whatever to solve this problem Mm. that's not what you're out to achieve right you're out to achieve uh, the core concept 
right? yeah. I think you're achieving that very well there. And, and I think there's a there's a scrappiness to anyone who's in a startup, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have you know have an idea for a, for an app, or or they're in a startup, or they've been in a startup. And I think the the words that really resonate with me from a startup point of view, I forget the gentleman's name, but whoever founded Airbnb, and I remember him talking about the fact that at the start he had a philosophy of not being scalable. He did things not scalable, so. He went and slept in, you know, in the bedrooms or in the, on the couch for whatever it was, the first 100 places that were on Airbnb. And that's obviously not scalable. You can't do that when you get to 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 places. But that's what he needed to do at the start. And I think there's a scrappiness to that. We're just going to do whatever it takes to get it done. And in early prototyping of software, and especially in games, because there's such a massive dependency on feedback from the player, is this working? Is this not working? Is my creative idea good or not? It's really different to if you're specking out something that's more of a practical solution where you can say, okay, I need a way for people to manage their time more effectively. Oh, I can see they're managing their time more effectively. But in games, you say, I'm trying to make an experience where through my code and through my artwork and through my design, someone's going to get there and feel uh, excited and frantic and, and rushed and, and a good problem solver. Am I doing that? And you have to get feedback on that really quickly. So you don't have time to architect pretty code. If you architect pretty code, then you get really precious about it when your player says, mm, I'm not really enjoying this feature you've put into this game. Maybe maybe you've got a way of, of, you know, I don't know, going through a portal. And the player's like, these portals are dumb. You're like, I spent a week architecting that portal. You will like that portal or else. And so you've got to be scrappy and... That's a little bit in contrast with the more purist people who are, who are programmers first. They're saying, that's a dumb way to do your code. Yeah, but it, it's quick and we can change it easily and we can get rid of it easily. So that's a lot of the balance that we do yeah. when teaching and what we do when we're making games. 100%. And Rick, you're talking, you're talking about agile software development, right? So if, if I had to put everything that you've just said in the last sort of three minutes into, into a category or a philosophy of software, this is agile software, right? It's all about tight iterations, incredibly fast feedback, building something so, building something so that it can change, yep. right? but doing the very simplest implementation first in order to deliver that value. And the translation into games is obvious, right? Getting something in the hands of a player or a product person who is, who is designing this product and getting that feedback so that you can pivot and get something that is either more in line with what they want or more valuable or more in line with what the players want. Yep. And I think, um, you know, reading about game dev over the last sort of career, I think I've been a gamer and a retro game collector and you name it since since I was a kid, right? I've, yep. been, I've been heavily, heavily involved with it. And you, you read about these game devs that are so precious, they go into a basement, they built this game over a period of a year, they released it and the feedback's been negative and it discourages them from continuing because they've just invested so much energy of yep. their life into this thing that they're passionate and they love and it's for them, it's the most perfect thing. They release to the world and they get you know negative feedback and then they put down their tools and they go, well, this isn't for me. I'm going to go back to being an accountant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's, that is... That's, that's part of, I mean, the more we can spread the message that uh, the first game you're going to make is going to be terrible and the second game you're going to make is going to be terrible and the third game you're going to make is going to be terrible. So go make those games really quickly. And the, we see a lot in our community that people will have their dream game, like someone who 
since the age of seven, I've wanted to make this role-playing game where, you know, you're the, the king, but you're not the real king, you're the fake king, and you have to go rescue the princess, but not the real princess, it's the fake princess, and there's going to be this and that, 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 that. So they've got this in their mind, they've built this epic, imagined experience. Oh, cool, I'm ready to go make that. Excellent, make that as your third game. Do not, do not make it as your first game. You will, like, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people scattered along the roadside, broken and destroyed because they tried to make their dream game first. And they didn't know how to make it. They weren't ready for it. And they were so precious about the idea. And as you're saying, it's immovable. You can't be agile if you've already crafted the entire experience in your head. And one of the frustrations I had working in bigger studios uh, is that, there's a there's a flow of requirements so the publisher is saying okay we're putting in millions of dollars into this we want to see exactly what you're going to make we want to reduce the risk tell us exactly what you're making and so the designer and this was often me in studios would spend weeks making this gigantic a game design document this is exactly what we're going to do and the producer would look at it and say okay or the publisher sorry would look at it and say okay we'll change the thing here change that there looks pretty good okay go make that over the next two or three years and who knows if it's going to be any good it's all just in your head and on paper and so you get the 500 people the machine starting to build this particular thing and if it's not very interesting all you've got is to throw more art assets at it to make it look prettier so there's a lot of AAA games out there that are really bland very safe very samey as all the other games but look amazing because you know we know for sure we can add some more cutscenes and add some more art and have it look really good but it, they absolutely didn't follow that, that agile, iterative approach because they couldn't because of the constraints of the business model. This is the advantage of the indie game developer that might be a solo indie or might be paired up with one or two people or a small studio, is you can get there and say, okay, let's take one day just to throw some stuff on the screen and see if it's interesting. And if it's not, let's try something else and let's try something else and let's try something else. And you can do that. And even if you're a month into it, you can still quickly pivot and change based upon the feedback of your player but unfortunately in larger studios it's once you've cemented in your direction it's a lot harder to, to you know to turn that oil tanker around right and it, as you say it stems from the investors right it stems, it stems from the publishers who have uh, pumped money into the studio in order to yep. get a specific result that was pitched them and Yes. Yeah, by definition, the agility is gone, right? And you, as you say, you, you, you often see it. I mean, E3, you'll get a demo of some game that's that's in, in development, some um, cutscene-based demo, and then it just never sees light of day. Five years later, everyone's talking about the corpse of this game that's now sitting on someone's server somewhere that'll just never see the light of day. It presumably has had millions of dollars pumped into it already yeah. and completely wasteful. So that sort of that sort of leads to sort of the indie game world, right? So for those for the listeners that, of ours that don't know what indie game development is, it is simply a game studio that does not yet have a publisher, right, uh, or a publisher backing. It is a small studio that uh, is is building what they want to build. Is that a, is that part of the definition, or is there a much more broad it's so, definition? It's so fluid nowadays. Yeah, it's, that's a that's a great definition. It's so fluid because some indie game developers do have a publisher. I think it's. It's a certain size of studio, I think, um, and it's a certain amount of success. And, and yeah, often that's wrapped up in having a publisher. Um, you know, the more successful you are, the more likely you're, you're sort of in that publisher world. Well, no, that's not in, entirely true, but um, it, it, I think indie, the indie spirit 
is the whole, you know, couple people in the garage. That's the indie spirit. And at some point you say, well, you've got 100 people. I'm pretty sure you can't fit in a garage. So you're kind of not indie anymore. Right. Okay. So it's really about the size and and the influence of those people uh, on the yep. ground in terms of how quickly they can get things done. Yep. So then so then maybe my next question is, how, how does the funding work for an independent game studio? So yeah. let's take yours as an example. How did you mm-hmm. how did you support that endeavor? It's really it's really changed, Guy, over the years. Back when I was first getting into the industry, it was very much a publisher gives game studio money, game studio or you know, game studio pitches to the publisher, publisher gives them a bunch of money with milestones. You know, if you hit this milestone you get more money, you get more money, and then eventually the game gets made. And then there's been a slow evolution over time where the publisher would say, okay, well, we want to see a demo first. So show us the idea and show us that you can, you've got the capability to create it and then we'll give you some money. And, and then evolved to being, well, finish the game for us and then we'll see if we like it and we'll pay for it and then we'll get it out there and we'll, we'll give it a push. We'll give you some money and we'll publish it, et cetera. Now it's at the stage where publishers will say, show us that you've made it and finished it and it's successful and it's got good retention and monetization and, and there's a community supporting it and we'll give it a big old push. That's sort of within the indie space nowadays. You know, AAA is a bit different because often it's it's in-house. Um, you know, the, the publisher is the developer, so they're, they're funding themselves to create um, those ventures. But from an indie point of view, the days of having a good idea and getting money for it are, are well gone. Um, from a publisher point of view, there's been a real, obviously, a real wave of kickstarting or crowdfunding games. So I think that wave isn't as strong. Personally, I don't think it's as strong as it was. Um, but there was certainly a time where the crowdfunding became the publisher, where I've, I've got an idea, let's make it. But then that also iterated into, okay, you've got to show us the demo. And now if you're on Kickstarter, it, you practically have to have the game finished for people to say, okay, I'll kickstart this, which is basically just pre-orders um, for early access. Yeah. So for anyone listening who's saying, oh, if, you know, I'm interested in indie game development, can I get a publisher? You have to be as absolutely far along the path as you can be before you go out and knock on doors. And if you're off at a conference, which is a great place to find, you know, find and meet publishers, you need to have something that already is, is really, feels really good, is, is practically, you know, halfway done or finished in a way. Right. So I can imagine that that community support is is key in the modern age. I mean, you see a lot of the time. I mean, I follow a few of them as well. Some some uh, individual or very small uh, independent game developers who are just as involved in content creation as as any other YouTuber, right? So their their business, I think, depends a lot on that community engagement, whether it's live dev sessions or uh, Kickstarter or mm. trying to market their game in various ways through um, getting streamers to play beta versions and, and sort of driving this sort of wish list crowd right so on steam you you can add a game to your wish list if it doesn't exist yet and there's a demo or there's a yep. there's a video clip of this future game in whatever state it is currently and you can use that sort of community that 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 um a discord server that uh, kickstarter stream that wish list team to then go to a publisher and say here i've got a hundred thousand people who are ready to buy this game yep. i need forty thousand dollars to complete the first version so can we have a conversation and i think that makes it a lot easier nowadays and, and and to your point you have to be the you have to be a professional game developer first before you can 
get the funding to build a professional game. Yes. It's, it's a very difficult industry to be in. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. It, it's exciting and, and it's, um, it's alluring, I think, because you get to do a lot of everything. And a lot of people who just wish to do one thing really, really, really well, they're great folks to have in a big team, in a big studio, um, you know, being an expert in that area. But if you're looking to make an indie game, just yourself or a few friends, you need to be able to do a, a lot of different things. And one of the things that someone on the team needs to be able to do is to raise awareness for your game, to do marketing. And this is something that most people don't sign up for. You're like, I, I love to get into the code. I love to make features. I love the technology side of things. Maybe also a bit creative. Oh, I also like the artistic side of things, making things look good. Maybe you also got some audio skills. Oh, you know, I like making it sound good. That's really cool. Maybe you're also a designer or a level designer. Oh, I like to do the layout and the progression and, and all that kind of stuff. And then to also say, oh, by the way, I also also really enjoy building a community and and managing the social media and creating a following. That skill set is pretty rare and unique to find someone who is capable of doing all those things and interested in doing that, all those things. However, I think there's lots and lots of people out there in the world who love that. They love to be a generalist and they love to be able to dabble in a whole bunch of different things and I guess be the, the captain of a reasonably complex ship as opposed to feeling like they're just a little cog in the machine that doesn't matter. So that also is a lot of the appeal that I think you would find if you're talking to folks who are out there making apps or people who are you know, developing websites or people who are, um, you know, have any sort of, any sort of more um, entrepreneurial spirit, there's that thrill of doing a lot of things and, and having to learn constantly how to do those things. That's really exciting, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an appeal to me uh, for, mm. for, for that world. I'm 38 years old. Maybe it's too late for me, but I never know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. not it's not so, too late. I mean, that, and that's a great question. I think we should just we should answer that because, you know, we have people in our community that are 12 and people that are 70. And it's never too late because this is the really exciting thing about today's day and age. Your customer doesn't care at all about who you are when they're looking at your product. They're going to look at it and say, does this look engaging? Does this look interesting? Does, is this worth my whatever, five, ten, fifty dollars to, to consume this? At no point do they say, wait, 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 let me check out who's this guy person? How, how old is he? Where's he from? You know, he's got a funny accent. I don't know if I want to buy this game. And this is the magic of it. You can be whoever you are. You, there's absolutely no fundamental reason why you can't succeed in making video games. Like, there's no reason at all. From a you know, from a who you are or where you've come from or how old you are or what gender you are or what ethnicity you are or what country you live in, there's there's equal opportunity. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. There's absolutely not equal opportunities in the world. But from a from a player's point of view or a purchaser's point of view, they're going to look at your product and say, "Is that a good product? Yes or no?" I think that's really exciting. I, I love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so Rick, you're also a game development career coach, right? So you're, you're a teacher, you're an online trainer, but specifically, I think, is this referring to a direct client engagement with uh, potential future indie developers or current indie, indie developers where you actually assist them more directly? Or how does that part of your role work? Yeah, that, that's, uh, it, it was a part of my business that I was very passionate about for a long time. Not, it's not as much what I do nowadays from a, from a, paid consulting perspective i tend to wrap that up into more of a one-to-many as opposed to one-to-one -one. so 
for me as a as a coach i learned a lot of the fundamentals of um you know where are people stuck and if you know say i'm having a conversation with you as a coach and you're saying oh, i really want to make games i really want to pursue this great where, where are you stuck what don't you know how to do and so for me to to have that aspect of my business where i was a coach for many years i can then bring that knowledge saying okay guy and and other folks like guy tend to get stuck on this phase of the process so let me understand that really deeply and then go out and tell a hundred thousand people how to break through that particular barrier so i think coaching is for me has been a lot less about the technical aspect of how do i write this code because that's not a very efficient way for that person to you know to learn how to write that code they can take a course and and it'll be more cost effective for them but from the the psychology of where am I getting stuck or the imposter syndrome of I don't think I should do this or I don't think I'm ready for it or the confusion of but how do I make it fun or or the frustration of but no one's playing it. That was a lot of what my my coaching brought me through that process. Um, but just between you and me, don't spread this around the internet. Um, coaching is really draining and I, I got to the point where I just needed to stop, um, you know, doing one-on-one coaching because you you give so much of your soul to the person you're trying to help you have to really invest in them to have them succeed um and you know at some point you kind of you you need to refresh the soul if that makes sense does that analogy even make sense yeah yeah Yeah, it makes sense um so at the risk of further draining your soul just (laughs) as a hypothetical this is filling my uh, cup guys let's steal some of your historical (laughs) <laughs> let's steal some of your, your previous coaching experience and drain yeah. your soul a little bit. And okay. let's say a company like us, Hayfully Software, the parent company of the Agile CTO. Let's say we're a custom dev house. We not Let's say we are. We are a custom dev software house that likes to build software in an agile way. And we decide tomorrow we want to start a venture of building a leg of our company to potentially pursue indie game development. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where to begin. I don't know who to hire. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know how to market that sort of business. What sort of high-level advice would you give a company like ours if we wanted to dive into it? So we're not an individual in a garage. We're a, we're a collection yeah. of professionals and potentially could have a subset of the features that are required, but we don't know what those are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really important for you as a team and obviously to get the core team together and, and pick a genre that you're interested in. What I mean by genre, if people don't understand that, is what type of thing is it? So if you think of genres with music, you know, maybe it's maybe it's rap, maybe it's hip hop, maybe it's country, maybe it's uh, rock and roll, maybe it's classical. And in your studio, if you've got a whole bunch of people that are say really into classical music, then you know, go learn how to be good at classical music, and then start making classical music. It's exactly the same for games. So if you have a conversation like, well, everyone in our studio plays, I don't know, Rocket League. Everyone in our studio plays um, Call of Duty. Everyone in our studio is on their phone playing uh, match three games, uh, whatever it might be. You, if, if you can get some consensus on that, you can say, cool, maybe it is strategy games. We love strategy games. Like that guy, that guy, this gal, you know, that lady, we love strategy. Cool. We are making strategy games. Let's start researching them. Let's start playing them. And most importantly, and this is going to be like, absolutely not a revelation but is the most critical step start making them and you might say but we don't know how to do that we haven't made them so therefore we don't know how to make them um the the way you do that is you sit down you take a a an online course like the sort of stuff we do you you learn the just the absolute basic skills and then you get a cube on the screen and you figure out how to make that cube move from there to there 
and you say, okay, what's the strategy? What's this, what's the cube need to do? Okay, you need to decide whether you go forward or back. Let's just figure out how to do that. Let's make it fun and interesting and engaging to have the cube decide, should I go forward or should I go backwards or should I spin around? So you get right down to the absolute fundamental moment of what it is for a strategy game to be interesting and just start playing around with that. Don't worry about how it looks. Don't worry about how it's architected. Don't worry about who you need to hire. Don't worry about any of those things. Just just get enough, like a month's worth of learning so you've got enough skills to just start playing around in that space. And as soon as you're ready to make a thing, make a really bad strategy game. And the, the killer solution here, the, the absolute best thing to do is to join a game jam. So if anyone's listening doesn't know what a game jam is, basically it's, it's, a, um, it's not a competition, but it's phrased a little bit like a like an event, like a, like, a, like a fun run, if you will. If people understand fun runs, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose or how fast you go, you do a little bit of training and then the fun run happens, you know, you, you start, you run along, you have a couple of drinks along the way and you get to the end of the fun run. So game jams are like that. It might be over a weekend or it might be over a week. You do a game jam with you and a couple of people on the team who are interested and you just make a little strategy game. Keep it focused on strategy game. Don't get tempted let's make a racing game. No, 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 you guys are the strategy game studio. And so you work on a game jam, it's going to be bad. It's not going to make sense. You're going to say, oh, crap, we needed to do this and this and this and this and this and we don't have any idea how to do those things. Great, the next phase is go figure out how to do those particular things and then make a slightly less bad strategy game. And when I say game here, I'm don't don't be thinking like AAA, the stuff you go buy down at the, down at the game store uh, or, or the things you see on Steam, you're making a moment. You're making a two-minute experience. That's what you've got to do when you're starting out. And this is back to, you know, I know you talk a lot about Agile. It's the process of if we can get this two minutes to be interesting, then we can make three minutes that are interesting. Then we can join on another five minutes that are interesting and and join together these moments, moment, 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 to make a game. And the 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 one of the, hard parts to do and the important parts to do when making a game is to get that one first game mechanic you know the, the moving or the shooting or the exploding or the the, the puzzliness whatever the absolute fundamental minimum viable product is get that to be an interesting experience before you go off and do a whole bunch of other things so it's a little bit like if you're building a house build the foundations you know, get all the, the um, structure in place, get the framework in place and get the pipes in place before you even worry about what colour are the walls. Like, the, just don't even worry about, think about that later or, you know, before you worry about what, you know, what doorknobs do we put on the doors. So that would be, hopefully absolutely. there's some, some interesting thoughts in that whole ramble. Yeah, yeah. absolutely uh, there is. Um, so if you think about a studio like Blizzard, right, small independent game company, some people might have heard of it, right? <laughs> but uh, Blizzard has got hundreds and thousands of employees all over the world, presumably. And and you think to yourself, I mean, what does each of those people contribute to any given game? So yeah. presumably there's multiple games in the works at any given time, some of which never see the light of day, but there's a couple of big ones that do. Yep. So each person has a specific role to play in that game development process. Now, in an independent game studio, presumably you have a collection, a small collection of generalists that mm -hmm. sort of then later emerge that you might need to hire as a more dedicated specialist in a certain area. But yeah. the idea is to keep them generalists as long as possible, right? So it's like, okay, do only hire or only grow if you absolutely need to. And that's a very agile uh, way to think about it. It's like, 
at the point when you need a specialist sound engineer to build your 3D audio pipeline, then hire the specialist audio engineer. Until then, yep. download the free samples, utilize the tool set as, it, as, as it's needed, and sort of ham-fist your way through it until you can't yes. anymore, and then build on top of that. Uh, absolutely, and you're saying free samples. Uh, asset packs, uh, the best friend for a, for a game developer who's starting out, you, if you, if you don't ha- yet have skills in creating art, then don't create art. Go and just spend $10 and you've got amazing looking art. And that will get you to the point where you can see if people are enjoying your game, then you can say, okay, maybe now it's time to invest some money in, in a contract artist to do something a bit different to these, these $10 assets. But you can go for a long, you can launch a game with the $10 assets. You can absolutely do that. If you can create an interesting experience for the player, then they don't care if you're using asset store assets. They're totally fine with that. So uh, if, you, if we're talking specifically about indie game development, your goal should be to um, cut as many corners as possible to find what is compelling about your game. And until you find what's compelling about your game, don't overinvest in anything. And you, you know, ultimately, you wouldn't hire a, an audio engineer as a, as a team member um, you would contract someone for X number of weeks to you know, help your game come alive from an audio perspective. Um, the, core, the core game team is going to be a programmer and an artist. That's the core game team. Now, that can be the one person. If you think of you know, one of the, the greatest examples of all time of indie games is Minecraft in terms of the success that it had. Um, you know, that was created by a gentleman who was a programmer who sort of cobbled together some programmer art but it did it in a way that ended up being kind of quaint and, and interesting and remarkable. So you don't have to be able to do everything. Sorry, you, you don't have to have someone to do each thing. You can do it all yourself. But at some point, it's handy to say, well, if we want to grow this, we need a programmer, an artist. At some point, you might say someone needs to be the game designer, very important role. So you might have those three people. The game designer might also be doing the marketing and, and some of the other things. And then as you expand, you're going to have another programmer another artist and maybe a you know instead of a designer maybe a dedicated marketing business person and then as you expand you're going to have another programmer and another artist and that might be cool and then another two programmers another two artists at some point you might need some support staff in terms of a producer to make sure that all the you know stinky people that are in the room are you know bathing enough and looking after themselves and stinky devs not playing stinky (laughs) devs not playing call of duty all day long when they should be working so so that, that, that's kind of the progression and you can do that as a one person or you can do that as you know a hundred people um, and, and the agileness of it is growing exactly like you say as you need it and as the players are saying what you're doing is really working can you please do more of it yeah yeah okay can we talk about the tooling for a second so I know your, your, your company Game Dev TV focuses on uh, two two high-profile game engines that are, are out there in the world. So maybe let's start there. Let's talk about what game engines are and what they aren't, sort of for our listeners that may not know what that is. Can you give us a high level of what is a game engine? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a game engine, someone clever in a, in a big company has already built the systems, the fundamental systems to make the game work in the software. So to, to get even to get a character running around on the screen requires if you start from absolute zero like i'm just going to open up a compiler and and an editor and go for it you've got to figure out how to do the rendering and how to do all the 3d uh, calculations and how to make audio play and 
and how to have lighting work, etc. So the engines have provided all of that framework so that you don't need to build the systems and the infrastructure to just get things to, to work on the screen. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're massive companies that have spent a massive amount of time doing that. So they're giving you this gigantic head start um, if you use an engine. Awesome. And the two big ones at the moment, at least the free ones that I'm aware of, are uh, Unity 3D and Unity 2D as well, but Unity in general, and um, Unreal Engine, right? Whichever flavor, whichever version. I think four and five are the most predominantly used versions at the moment. Five less so. It's just been released probably or recently released. Um, what, what would sway a developer to use either of those engines? You, you mean and, to, and to, use, to use an engine or to choose engine over A over other. engine B? One over the other. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, this is one of those debates. It's really, really akin to the um, Mac versus PC debate. Uh, as some people are passionate about one and, and not about the other, they both get the job done. Like you can run Photoshop on a Mac or on PC. So uh, I think both of those engines can make pretty much everything you'd ever want. Um, the Unreal Engine, uh, well, Unreal Engine started out more as a first-person shooter, AAA multiplayer type uh, type engine and it has that spirit running through it uh, throughout so um, when you think triple A you're more likely to think Unreal Engine whereas Unity has more of a, an, an indie game um, cultural feel to it more of a mobile um, friendly feel so uh, if you're looking to make games that feel more indie or uh, more mobile then you know Unity tends to be more of the go-to However, that was the case, I think, a few years ago that they were a bit more polarized. But I see you can do everything. Both engines look spectacular in the final product. Both engines have mobile support. Both engines, you can easily port your games over to a whole bunch of different um, platforms. So there's less and less difference between the two in terms of which one should I use as a starting point. Okay, okay. And can you, in your experience, look at a final product and know which engine that was used to build the game without any other context? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, usually, usually yes, but um, that's mostly because people tend to. It's one. It's interesting. Not not from the engine. It's the the engine is basically just pushing around your artwork on the screen. So you know, it, it's you can't look at it and say, oh, that's. I, I recognize some things in here that's Unity or Unreal. Um, but it tends to be if someone wants to make a certain type of game, they tend to use one engine over the other. So it's more it's more that kind of matching. But no, from a, a, a player is not going to be able to spot, um, oh, this is definitely made in engine A or B. Not at all. Okay. And would you say AAA studios tend to lean towards um, Unreal Engine over Unity? Yeah, they... I mean, there's, that's a multi-layered question. So, AAA studios historically have built their own um, their own engine internally, and often if they've they're a AAA studio that's been around for a while, they might have had tech that they've been building and refining and building and refining for a long, long, long time. Um, so, a lot of studios have their own tech um, if if they're you know big old established AAA studios. But it's very common now to find. Um, most studios are using or many studios are using Unreal or Unity there's still a perception if you want your game to look AAA or be AAA yes use Unreal uh, I think Unreal still has an advantage in multiplayer Unity's trying to catch up but if you're looking to make any sort of 
online multiplayer triple a action adventure or shooter or competitive or esports type game then uh, historically and, and i think still today unreal engine is definitely the preference um, but if you're looking to make that quirky fun indie game then absolutely uh, unity is is still i think the the preference i don't know the stats that'd be interesting if you've got any percentages there of of who chooses what but you know that's generally the flavor yeah, me personally, not at all. I'll probably Google it after this to, to find out yeah. for sure. Uh, I think for me, the choice was easy uh, um, based on, on my um, professional uh, software uh, language that I work with every day, which is C-sharp. And, and in, yep. in that sense, Unity is easy for me because it's, it's .NET, it's C-sharp, it's, it's mm. easy, it's more accessible. But if you're, if you're really starting out as a developer, it doesn't really matter, right? It, you know, it's really... Whichever one you want. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting as well because Unreal has a bit of a reputation for being more of a beast to wrestle with. It's, it's, it's less forgiving, I find. You know, there's a, you have to do it this way and if you don't do it the Unreal way, then it's just not going to work. Whereas Unity, you can kind of bumble around and it's like, well, like, Rick, I kind of think I know what you're trying to do, so I'll, I'll sort of let it happen. Um, and I think Unreal because if, if you're coding in Unreal, you're using C++, and C++ has the reputation for being a less friendly language than if you're using C Sharp in Unity. You know, they're, they're the two languages. Unreal uses C++ and Unity uses C Sharp as languages. However, Unreal has a really spectacularly powerful visual scripting uh, solution called Blueprints, and it's very, very beginner-friendly. So someone with no programming experience can very easily get in there and just drop in a node, pull the line from A to B, drop in another node, and stuff, something's happening in their game world. So Unreal's got this reputation for being very intense, but also beginner-friendly uh, at the same time. Um, and Unity, a little bit more beginner-friendly, they've also got a visual scripting language that they're starting to put more love into, and it's becoming a bit more of a, you know, bit more of a, a serious option i think not quite as renowned as blueprints but definitely an option okay and, and what is the downside to using one of these uh, commercial game engines there, i know that there is a licensing implication to yep. to using them and they've, they've each each got their own sort of model on how they work but just in a nutshell um what are the downsides to using a pre-developed game engine like unity uh, versus um, and, yeah uh, yeah, as an indie game developer, I would I would boldly say there's zero downside, like zero. Because if you know, obviously, if if and when you earn money, you need to start paying a percentage of that money or a royalty share to the engines. Uh, but that's such a great deal! Like, what an amazing deal! You you can just bumble along for years using their incredible software they've spent you know tens and hundreds of millions of dollars creating for, for absolutely for free. And then if you happen to do something that earns, I think, you know, depending upon the engine, in the order of $100,000, then you need to start paying them a percentage of the money that you're earning. That's, that's an incredible deal. If you were to try to create the or replicate what you're getting from the engines yourself, you know, there's years and years and years and years to get to that point. So the downside, yeah, you have to pay for it at some point, but that cost, I think, is minuscule compared to the cost of developing it yourself. So there's going to be some purists out there listening and like, I want to make my own game engine. And that is really cool. I support that and I celebrate that as a, as a hobby and as one of those, you know, some folks love, love cars, love being a mechanic for a car. And they're like, I just want to be able to tear apart my car, 
every last part I want to take apart and then I want to put the whole thing back together again. That's wonderful. Like what a great hobby to have, but why on earth would you do that as, as any, for any sort of commercial reason? You know, you don't need to do that, but someone wants it. It's just exactly the same with building your own engine. Okay, if that's a, an itch you want to scratch, go for it. But if you're seriously thinking about making games, then I, I personally see no reason at all as an indie game developer on a small team um, to, to make your own engine. It would only be if you were, you know, gigantic and you looked at it and said, well, this game we're projecting is going to make $100 million. We don't want to give whatever $10 million to, um, to the engine. We want to make it ourselves for $2 million. So that's, that's the bigger the studio gets, sometimes they're going to have that conversation. But again, if I was running that studio, I'd say, let's just, that's a good problem to have. Let's, let's get to the point where we're making $100 million and give this engine the money they deserve it. Yeah. Uh, you would never be able to build anything close to that engine for anything close to that amount of licensing, even if you're paying it for the next 50 years, most likely. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's talk to the early career uh, aspirational game developer. What is it they need to do tomorrow to start their journey as, uh, let's not even say they want to start an indie development studio. They just want to be a game dev. What, if, what yep. does the aspiring game dev need to do tomorrow? Yeah, make a game. It's as simple as that. So let me tell you how easy it is to make a game. I, I've got a couple of daughters. They're, um, one, the, the eldest is just about to turn 10. And she knows what I do, you know, sitting away in my cave making games and teaching people how to make games. And so she's at the point where she's interested in computers and, and a bit of programming. Like, cool, would you like me to teach you how to make games? Oh, my God, that'd be amazing. Dad, let's do it. I'm like, great. And so... Um, Scratch. I don't know if you're familiar with Scratch, but it's developed by MIT. You go to scratch.mit.edu, I think, um, and you'll find the Scratch game engine. It's completely in browser, and in like five minutes, you can make a game. It's drag and drop with blocks. It's very visual scripting. So you can get there and say, okay, I'm going to figure out how to drag some blocks onto this thing and make a little game. There's tutorials, there's starter projects, all that kind of stuff. So in, in, an, in a morning, you can make a game. And then you ask yourself, okay, I've got a very basic toolkit. How do I make this interesting? And so I, I'm, my character's moving around, but no one cares. No one cares you can make a character move around. How do I make it interesting? What's the game? So you don't need to spend a month, a year, 10 years. You don't need to go to university. You don't need to, to study for hours and hours and hours and hours to get to the point where you are a game developer working on the fundamental, most difficult part of being a game developer, which is why would someone ever invest their time into this experience I've created? You can do that with Scratch really easily. You can do that with Unity very easily. You know, grab one of our courses and within, you know, a couple of days you're in there making games. You just have to make games and you have to ask yourself the question, why would someone want to play this? What's compelling? What's the challenge? And there's a whole bunch of game design things that, that um, I won't go too deep into, but I'll give you and, uh, and folks listening the one most important, in my opinion, the one most important uh, game design technique, which is to give your player choices. So if you have no choices, it's not a game. It's just a movie or it's, uh, or it's sitting at the, you know, the poker machine, the slot machine, just pulling the lever and the game says you won or you lose. So give your player a choice. So you can have that cube moving around on the screen that you made in you know, 10 minutes in Scratch. Say, okay, what's my choice? It's gotta be a, an interesting choice, a meaningful choice. Do I move left or do I move right? Why would I move left? 
and why would I move right? Okay, well, if I go left, I've got this challenge. If I go right, I've got that challenge. I now need to figure out how to build the challenge of left and right. So that's the, at the absolute fundamental um, game development. The, the learning the technology, I think, is the, the time-consuming part, but the easy part, because there's a recipe. There's a formula for it. Okay, start one of our courses or jump online on YouTube or you know go to school. You start, you figure out how coding works, you figure out how the engine works, you go through that flow. The hard part or the, uh, the unpredictable part that there's not an exact recipe for is how do you make that interesting? How do you make it so someone actually wants to move your character around? And that's the thing that anyone who's new should be practicing right now, today, the very first thing they do. And while they're learning all the technical skills, every day be trying to figure out how do I get good at making this a good experience. Great. Rick, we've dove, we've dove pretty deep into indie game development and we've covered a lot of ground. I think now is the time for us to learn a bit more about you as an individual. Right? So maybe tell us what is your most recent accomplishment in, your, in, in recent memory? Okay, recent so... Recent most proud moment. <laughs> okay, this is going to sound really, really dumb, but I'll link it back to something useful is my most proud accomplishment is being consistent with my health. Like, I'm in reasonably okay shape, but I've gone down two belt notches in the past six months. And that's from being consistent. And that consistency of, you know, doing my intermittent fasting, cutting out things I shouldn't be having, and exercising a couple of times a week. And the reason I'm proud of that is because that then impacts our business's profitability. By me doing that, that you know, it's not hard to do, but it takes, um, what's the right word here? It takes discipline. By doing that, I show up to work, you know, in our workspace in a positive frame of mind, in a can-do frame of mind, in a look at us, we're winning frame of mind. And then I, I try to spread that to the team in terms of we, we can do it. So and a little bit, I'm speaking to some of the indie game developers out there who, who may be listening is we get so wrapped up on our craft, on our product, on our development. We forget to look after ourselves. And I think your, your health and your mental um, strength are the most important qualities of whether you're going to succeed or not in, in the marathon that is uh, you know, development in general. So, yeah, I'm, that's what I'm proud of. Brilliant. And then the opposite of that, what is the thing that's itching at the back of your brain when, you, when you're alone, when you're in the shower? What's that thing that's bothering you? What is the problem you're trying to solve at the moment? Huh. Um, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Um, you know what? It's probably related, Guy, I think. It's the... Okay, do, do you want me to give surface or do you want me to give deep? I know we don't have a lot of time, so I won't go into mega deep. You know what? How, I'll make time, Rick. Give go me a as level. deep as you want. How far, am I, how far am I drilling into the earth on this one? So um, I'm, I'm trying to be a bit... I'm, <laughs> go as deep as you're comfortable. I'm trying to be a bit useful for people listening as well and not just like, oh, it's all about me. Um, but I, I've spent a lot of time, and you are mentioning before your age. For me, I'm in my 40s, and... Um, you get to a point where you've achieved some of the things you want to achieve in life and you get a certain degree of, of stability. And then you ask yourself, what's the point? What's my purpose? What's, what am I doing in this life? What impact am I making? And to get really crystal clear on that means that, once again, you can be powerful in what you do in your life, you can be successful in your business, etc. So the whole what, 
what niggles me in the back of my mind is what am I what am I doing? Like what's where am I gonna get to in ten years time? And is the current train that I'm on the right train? And if it is the right train, is it going at the right speed? And if it is going at the right speed, do I have the right passengers who are there with me? So that's that's super important to me. It wasn't important in my younger years. I didn't really think about it. I was just sort of doing stuff. Oh, there's a problem, I'll go solve it. You know, there's an opportunity, I'll go jump on it. But nowadays it's it's a lot more um, of, of a drive for me to consider my my overall purpose and it can't just be it can't be shallow of you know gonna make some money or I'm gonna help a couple of people it needs to be a lot a lot richer than that I think so um, and yeah, I, I find think I'm with you on that train Rick yep I, I, I find as well a lot of people that I've you know you asked me before about coaching a lot of people that I've coached the fundamental issue is that they don't have a purpose and they don't need to have a purpose because they don't yet they're not yet at the point where they have a um nothing's on fire when when things are on fire when you have a something you must do in your life you get it done you must earn enough money to pay the rent you you earn that money and you pay the rent you must put food on the table you put food on the table that's just the way we're wired as humans but if you get there and say well wouldn't it be nice if i had a little bit more food on the table that doesn't tend to get that food on the table wouldn't it be nice if i had a little bit more money or a little bit more time or a little bit more whatever so I think we need to uh, – it, it, it's really difficult if you're a, you're a young person living at home, your parents are looking after you. Um, uh, th- what's the need? Like, do you, I'm, I'm retired. This is great. I'll sit around and, you know, watch movies and play games all day. So you've got to have a need. You've got to have a fire. And sometimes you have to create that artificially, I think. So anyway, ran- random side tangent there about life purpose. No, no, no. It's, uh, I appreciate the sentiment, and it's, it's, it's really good to hear that. And I think I'm on that same sort of train with you. Later in life, things, your priorities shift. Uh, I can think of myself 20 years ago as a different human being. Nowadays, there's kids, there's family, there's obligation, there's, there's all sorts of skin in the game that needs yeah. to be uh, well-maintained and the balance needs to be met. And you sort of, you, you, you're that purpose, that, like, that question you ask yourself, like, what is the purpose of the next 10 years? What do I need to be focusing on now? That's the niggle for me as well. So, What's, so, so, Guy, I'm I'm interested in this. This might not be allowed by the rules of podcast conversations, but <laughs> what what is your life purpose at the moment? Do you have one, and and can you articulate it? What's your life purpose? It's a very good question. Nobody's ever asked me a question on this podcast. So, how dare they? Terrible, the terrible yeah, participants. Uh, yeah, Jamie, just make a note. Never invite Rick back again. I just, this, is, this is not great. No. Um, I guess right now my purpose is to uh, be a half decent dad to my toddlers. Right? So yep. I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So right now, mm. outside of my professional life, which is pretty stable, I'm, I can't complain about my, my work and my career and um, um, sort of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of it's been met for me largely. So right now my biggest nickel is like, how am I screwing up my kids? I know I'm screwing up my kids. How badly am I screwing up my kids? And what can I do to mitigate that level of screwed upness that they'll end up with dealing with in their later life? So I think for me, the purpose mm-hmm. is just not getting them to land up in jail. Okay. At the age of 15. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that, I hope that it's like a 10 second thought around that answer. But yeah, I think that's, uh, that's you, you know, and, and what's really cool, this is like dude to dude talking here. I, it took me a long time to uh, to find male friends in my network that would talk about things like that in a in a positive inspirational way and 
you know, without playing kind of couch psychologist here, I, I hear in, in your words that there's an apprehension about owning it with with pride and love and uh, god i'm starting to sound a little bit tree hugging here but for me it's taken i've been this is the whole this is the whole journey that i you know you're talking about what really gets me thinking is uh, to get to the point where i'm saying i i'm i'm passionately looking after my family as the absolute best dad in the whole world like that's that's really and it's taken me a long time to get that kind of language around it and for me, from a business point of view, my goal is to earn. Uh, I've got a, I've got a number, you know, a, a number of money, the, the amount in the bank I need, so that if I was to die tomorrow, my family is looked after forever. And my goal in my business is to get to that number as effectively as I can, so that you know we can be hit by a bus any day, you know, or or any other sort of yeah. things can happen. So I'm 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 on a mission to get to that number, and I'm not messing around. And that for me was a really important life's purpose distinction. Why earn money just to get a faster car? Who who cares? But to earn money so that if I die, my family's looked after. Yeah. That really gets me. That really gets me, you know, in the yeah. you know, in the chest plate. So I think Yeah, totally. You, you know, that and I'm sure it's the same with you. You were just, you know, you you were careful with your language, but you know, I'm I'm sure it's the same thing. It's more than just keeping your kids out of prison when they're fifteen. Like you you want them to not necessarily have everything so that makes you know you don't want them to be spoiled but you know you want to as men we're we're there to to protect our kids aren't we and to to look after them and that's how we're hardwired to to make sure that they're not going to be hurt and to um you know to give them what they need to be powerful individuals yeah absolutely and i think at some point you shift from a selfish mindset to one where it's directly around your whole purpose shifts to those that are closest to you and around you as opposed to yourself and your your selfish whims and uh, and needs yeah Um, okay yeah super 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 not related to super not related to game development conceptually however the, the point i was trying to make before is for me it's absolutely related to succeeding in business is if you've got your house in order yeah you know physically and with your with your family and with your relationships you fly so that you know that people yeah. i don't think enough people yeah. frame it that way and use it as a to, to explain why you should care about it in a business sense like you should, it, it's a should yeah but for me it's a must and that's made all the difference yeah absolutely yeah well thanks very much for that rick um can we close off today just by asking you what game are you playing at the moment or what games are you playing at the moment? yeah you play i do I do play for re- just for research, though. You know, I don't not because I like them. Just for no, I do. I, I play them. Interestingly, I'm playing a game called Line War, which is a game that was developed by um, a, a friend of mine, a relatively new friend, who um, has a YouTube channel. His name is Infenzia on his YouTube channel. His actual name is Stefan, and it's in early demo stage, like very, very early on. And and I'm playing it just because I want to support him and well that was the original starting point and now i'm hooked on it it's a strategy game it's super rough in early days but it's so interesting so um yeah playing playing that it's it's not a big old commercial game it's just in super early days but it's great fun uh, and before that i was playing a bunch of rocket league with my brother because um you know i love rocket league and and yeah. um yeah so that's where it's i fun game it. Sorry. And um, okay, at the risk of opening up a can of worms, what went wrong with Cyberpunk? 
Oh. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's hard to know what went wrong as in what went wrong with development versus what went wrong with marketing versus what went wrong with messaging versus what went wrong with technology. So I think whenever there's a big game and something goes wrong, it's usually because um, there, there was a conflict between creative and business. Business like we need to get this finished now or it needs to get out there or we need to hype it or we need to promise everything. And creative is saying, well, this is what we think will make for a good experience. So I don't know the exact answer to that, but nearly always big games that don't quite work out is because um, they're hard. To, they're hard to. They're hard to make. So yeah, that's a yeah, terrible answer. Sure. Sorry, I don't know an out of it. No, no, no. I just wanted. To, I was just interested to know your take on it because it's such a high-profile failure in the recent memory around AAA game development and and. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to me how something like that can happen, right? And well, I guess the answer is uh, one day at a time, right? <laughs> well, it's it's also it's it's so hard to be innovative and safe, and so I, I've seen this a lot on game teams. Amazing idea, like really amazing people with really amazing ideas and really amazing skills, but uh, someone at some point says, "Not sure if that'll work," or maybe we shouldn't do that, or maybe we should do this. Oh, actually, let's do all that again. And someone says, well, we, it's not ready. Well, I don't care. You have to put it out there. Well, that's not a good idea. Oh, you have to do it anyway. So it's that kind of, if you've got 100 personalities wrestling to say what happens, then know, sometimes you're not all on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rick, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us today. Uh, before I, I, uh, I say goodbye, how can our listeners reach you? How can they find, out, uh, find you? If, there, if there's any questions, how can they follow up? Um, where are you? Yeah, cool. So um, if, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's totally cool. Search for Rick Davidson. Um, I think it's Davidson Rick is my you know, my LinkedIn thingy. It's, it's surname first. Um, so feel free to message me. Just say, hey, listen to you on the podcast, and I'm, I'm happy to connect with you. Uh, jump over to gamedev.tv and check out what we've got going, going on over there. And if anyone wants to listen to myself and my colleague Tim Russwick chatting on... Uh, Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard U.S. time, then, um, you know, we do a live cast that we were just doing on Discord, but now we're doing on, uh, just are doing on live on YouTube. So come along, hang out with us, ask some questions, any questions at all. We answer them live every Tuesday, 5 p.m. Thanks very much, Rick. It's been a, it's been a really great episode for me. And, and uh, on a personal note, this is probably one of the most exciting uh, guests we've had. So thank you very much for making the time. And I, I really would like you to come back one day. So we'll try and keep the relationship civil going on from here. So this has been the Agile CTO. We'll catch you all in the next one. Goodbye. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to the Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.